Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and as is our custom, please stand as well for the reading of God's Word. We are continuing to work through Paul's first letter to his young protege, Timothy, and this morning, uh, we find ourselves where we left off last week, and that is in verses 8 through 10. So I'm going to read in your hearing 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. Let us hear now the word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And thus this, excuse me, and thus this ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. I, I want to ask you this morning, church, does Christ care about our gathering this morning? Does he he care? Does does he have an opinion on the matter? Maybe more than that, does Christ have a will or a desire or a command with respect to our worship together? And and the answer, of course, is yes, and, and on that, I hope we can all agree. So let me press a little bit further now. Does he care that we gather? Does Christ, the head of the church, does he command us to gather together for worship? And the answer again is a resounding yes. From the fourth commandment and the Sabbath day to to the Lord's day, in all of this we see that, that Christ is commanding his people to gather together for worship on Sunday. So in short, yes, Christ cares that we gather. Last question. Does Christ care how we gather? In other words, it's one thing to concede that Christ cares about our worship service and that Christ commands Christians to join churches and to gather together for worship. But once we do all of that, does he still care how we worship? And that will be the focus of our time this morning, answering that question. Not the that, but the how. Now, as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's important to remember, beloved, that the context is the church gathering for worship. More specifically, we are being instructed regarding how men and women are to conduct themselves when the church comes together. You'll remember from last week, uh, we had made mention that this section begins in verse 1 of chapter 2, and it runs all the way through the end of chapter 3. And through all of it, including our passage this morning, Paul is instructing us in how we ought to behave as a church. Now that language, it comes directly from 1 Timothy 3.15, doesn't it? 1 Timothy 3.15, we read that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. 
So it's important to recognize, Christians, that we are not talking this morning about private worship, but public worship. We're not talking necessarily about the scattered church, but the gathered church. We're not even talking about your quiet time, your private devotions, your family worship. But the the context here is congregational worship. And God has something to say to us. The Holy Spirit wants us to know how to behave this morning in the household of God. Or to say it just a little bit differently, Christ cares not just that we gather, but how we gather. So congregation, when it comes to how we ought to behave, this morning we will look at two groups. They're clearly laid out for us in the passage of Scripture. You have men and women. And Scripture will teach us of their respective callings as well as what is commended and condemned. So that's the blueprint if you're one of those note takers. We're going to look at what is the calling, what is commended, and then what is condemned. That's where we're going. We will start with the men because that is where scripture starts. So what are men called to? Well, put your eyes once again on verse 8. Scripture tells us, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. So so men are to be those who pray. That's our calling. If you remember from last week, we saw in verses 1 through 7 the content of our prayers. And and this week you're going to see something of the conduct. Or we might say, last week we learned who to pray for. Remember kings and all who were in high positions. This week... It's not who, but how. How are we to pray? Now, before we lean into that, let's just just quickly point out the obvious. Men are singled out here, aren't they? It is men, verse 8, who should pray. So why does Scripture single out men? And, And there's a lot of reasons for this. Let me just give you a couple. For starters, Men, please hear me, you are called to lead. And this is true both in the home and it is true in the church. Now, yes, of course, none of this means that that women can't gather with the church and, and, and pray. That's not what's being said. In fact, we had Emily lead us in prayer this morning, didn't we? According to 1 Corinthians 11, women are encouraged in the gathered assembly to pray. But nevertheless, men ought to take the lead here. Another reason men are singled out is because, and and men, I would just ask you to, to brace yourselves and just be humble and honest to hear this, men tend to be those who neglect prayer. Isn't this true? Isn't it true that as men, we sort of pride ourselves on the fact that we are innately problem solvers? We are those who get stuff done, right? Men build bridges and launch space shuttles and win wars. We don't have time to pray. We have stuff, we have stuff to get done, right? And unfortunately, the stats bear this out. I don't know if you know this or not, but all across our land, women outnumber men in terms of Christians. On top of that, men don't attend church as much. 
And men don't attend prayer meetings as much, and men don't lead in the church as much, especially in prayer. Now, I should say, by God's grace, that's not the case here. But I want you to know that when I talk to other pastors, both those locally and then when I have some other pastor friends in other states and other parts of the country, and I ask them, you want to know who attends prayer meetings? Older women. The men are absent. The men are MIA. And to all of this, Paul says, this is not how it's supposed to be. Men, you are called by God to lead. And you must lead first by humbling yourself and praying. Men, that's what your soul needs. That's what your family needs. That's what the church needs. It needs men who will actually be dedicated to fervent prayer. And again, remember, we're not just talking private prayer here, but public prayer. Men who will lead in the church first and foremost by getting on their knees. But men, please notice, it's not just that you pray. It's how you pray, which means there is a particular type of prayer that is pleasing to Christ. So Christian men, what is commended here? Well, let me give you two words, two words that should mark our prayers. Here they are, humility and holiness, humility and holiness. I say that because scripture tells us at the end of verse eight, that men should pray lifting holy hands. And, and, and just, just know, lean into it. That idea of lifting hands, it immediately puts before us, does it not, a posture, right? Lifting hands is a physical act. It's a way or a manner in which we are called to pray. Notice the obvious. Men are called to engage in prayer. We are not called to be lazily disengaged. Nor are we exhorted by Scripture to flippancy or irreverence. You, you know the thing where we check our phones during prayer? No, God says, have, have your hands lifted. And it's the idea. It, it's something that expresses worship and neediness and dependence and smallness. And humility. Now, to be clear, I do not think that verse 8 is mandating a particular physical posture. I don't think, men, if you don't lift your hands, God won't hear you or something like that. And I say that because throughout Scripture, prayer is offered in a multitude of ways. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Sometimes prayer is accompanied by bowing. Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Likewise, the prophet Daniel, we are told, got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, Daniel 6.10. Even our very own Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are told that he what? Knelt down and prayed, Luke 22.41. In other instances, you have the people of God laying themselves prostrate before the Lord. A good example of this would be Job. 
After having drank down the bitter cup of pain, we read, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. So here is Job. He has his belly on the ground, his nose in the carpet, and he's crying out to God. Still in other cases, the people of God stood during prayer. You see this take place in 2 Chronicles 6 when Solomon is leading the congregation in prayer. We are told, 2 Chronicles 6.3, this all took place while the assembly of Israel stood. And then, like our passage here in 1 Timothy 2, you have instances where the people of God, again, lifted their hands. Psalm 28.2 records, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 141 verse 2 echoes, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. There are a variety of ways, of of postures, in which God's people have prayed throughout redemptive history. And, and while we're thinking about this, I, I would just simply encourage us that we might do well to learn from Scripture's example here. Would that the people of God, would, would that we would actually kneel in prayer together. Can you imagine the sight of the congregation kneeling together, of lifting our hands together, of bowing together? The the unity that it would signify. Would it not do something good for our prideful hearts to actually get on our knees together? There are churches and there are denominations where the entire congregation is called upon to kneel during the prayer of corporate confession of sin. I think that is right in so many ways. Would that not be a powerful demonstration, beloved? But again, I don't think that this verse is mandating. I don't, I don't think you're sinning if you don't kneel. I'm not talking about a physical posture here. But I do think that we can say that verse 8 is mandating a spiritual posture. And that is humility. Humility is what ought to mark out our prayers. So that when our wives and our children... Or when the, when the congregation sees us men and hears us men in prayer, whether it's in our bedroom, whether it's in our study, whether it's here during the pastoral prayer, uh, whether it is in corporate prayer in the afternoon or in the evening together, one thought ought to fill the minds of those around us. These are humble men. These are men who need God. But humility is not an only child. Humility has a sibling, and that sibling is holiness. You'll notice we are not merely commanded to lift hands, but as verse 8 tells us, we are to lift holy hands. And the idea of holiness here, it is the idea of being free from impurity. And and so make sure that you understand, we're not just talking about like your hands alone, but but the idea of lifting holy hands, it's the idea that the hands are representing the entire life. 
So, so this is a life that is consecrated for God. It's set apart to Him. It's given over to His will, His ways, His word. You see the picture of this quite clearly in Psalm 24. The psalmist asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? You have to understand, the question is, who gets to come into God's presence? And the very next verse of Psalm 24 answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Notice very quickly, you see how they're joined together. Clean hands and a pure heart. So according to God's word, it is those who have clean hands and a pure heart who are invited into God's presence. And then the question immediately becomes, okay, well, how does one acquire these clean hands and a pure heart? How, do, how does this become me? It, it, do my clean hands and pure heart, it, is it the result of me somehow scrubbing myself clean? Do I get this, these clean hands and this pure heart by, by just, you know what, next time I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do better. I know that I am. Church, how do we remove the dirt of sin from our hands and the filth of rebellion from our hearts? And the answer, and by the way, it's the only answer, is by coming to Christ. Because in Christ's blood, our hands are made clean and our heart is purified. This is what God does through the gospel of His Son. He, he forgives us. He takes away the stain of sin. He removes the filth. He then declares us righteous in His sight. You, you see, the gavel has already dropped in the courtroom of heaven. Sometimes Christians think that, you know, they kind of got saved at some point in time in history and they're doing good, but then it really kind of depends upon them and they're really hoping that their good works outweigh their bad works on that day. I mean, they, they know that Christ saved them, kind of, but they also are under the impression that they better keep this thing up, they better get on that treadmill. And we're sort of hoping that on that day when we stand before God and the gavel drops, that, that, it will, that we'll have a favorable verdict. The good news of the gospel, beloved, is that that gavel has already dropped. It's not waiting for you. That gavel dropped when Christ shed his blood on Calvary. God doesn't just forgive you of your sins and say, now stay clean, y'all. God forgives you of your sins. He cleanses you. And then he credits to you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that you have his hands. You have his heart. That's how God views you. He sees you in Christ. He sees you with clean hands and a pure heart. Which means that this is all really about Christ and not about you. This is just part of being a Christian. Sort of the training wheels is, is coming to this realization that, that left to myself, I am a wretch. And I, and I hate to be the guy to tell you, but the same is true for you. 
You are a wretch. Left to yourself, you are a wretch. And God intervenes. And he comes to us and he cleanses our dirty hands. And he purifies our filthy hearts. This is why verse 8 is not a parable. I'm sorry, rather a parody. Because in verse 8, we really can lift holy hands. And the reason that we can lift holy hands is because our hands have made holy have been made holy through the blood of Christ. He was pinned to a tree, brothers and sisters, so that you would have clean hands and a pure heart. So men, that is what our prayers should look like. They should look like humility and holiness. That's what's commended to us. But what shouldn't they look like? What is condemned, men? Let me give you one word, and it's the word fighting. Fighting. And I want to submit to you that that's really the main idea there behind the end of verse 8. We're told men should pray, lifting holy hands, but they're to do so without what? Anger or quarreling. And the word there, anger, it's a really strong word. It's translated in other places as wrath. And quarreling, it's the result of anger, isn't it? Quarreling refers to these unholy disputes and arguments that are produced by an angry spirit. Fighting is what is prohibited. To which you might say, that kind of makes sense. But you also might be scratching your head and, well, how does this connect? How does this connect to men and to public worship and to prayer? Well, men, we sometimes have a tendency, don't we? What is our tendency? You ready? This might not be true of all of you, but we're speaking in generalizations. Men can tend to be very critical. They can be overly critical. And this is especially true, please hear this, men, when it comes to things in the church like doctrine or theology. Men tend to be those who want to argue and debate. Men tend to be those who shoot first and aim second. Men tend to be those who are so zealous for truth that they act like a bulldozer and they just plow over anybody who is in their way or who does not agree with them. It is men who, it seems, for every jot and tittle of doctrine or theology, that for them is a hill that they are willing to die on. It is men who want to fight and who want to argue and who want to win. This is why, men, when you go on YouTube and you look up uh, theological or political debates, what are the titles? James White destroys Arminian. Why? Why? Because we are out for blood. We're bent this way, aren't we? Now, ironically enough, it's also not all that uncommon for men to let stuff stew. We push stuff down, we cap it off. Our wife asks us, we say, oh, nothing to talk about. We're fine, I'm all good. But if we're not careful, we can quickly find ourselves harboring resentment and bitterness. And that bitterness, that resentment, that anger, that quarreling, it, let's be honest, it can be directed toward God. It can be directed toward our wife. It can be directed toward somebody two rows behind us. This is what happens. And so Paul's point is, is brothers, you, you can't approach God and prayer this way. You, you can't gather for worship lifting holy hands 
and wanting to put those hands on somebody else, right? If we come to church, if we come to prayer, if we come together, and all that is on our mind, men, is winning a battle, or beating this opponent, or showing this person I'm right, or justifying this, then Scripture's point is we are not approaching God and prayer the way that He would have us to. Our posture, men, is to be one of humility and holiness. It is not to be one of haughtiness and hostility. We're not to be fighting all the time. And so, men, if this is you, if you are angry and quarrelsome, then you need to repent. I would implore you to to humble yourself before the God of grace. Seek the mercy that is found in Christ's blood. Seek the mercy that Christ purchased for you in his death. And plead with God to work in you by his Spirit. And given the context of prayer, I would say, don't wait until tomorrow to do this, men. Today is the day of salvation. So you need to make things right today. In fact, you need to make things right this afternoon when we come together again for prayer. But let's be clear. It wasn't just the men of the church who needed to be poked and prodded. The women did too. So men, you can take a deep breath. Women, you can get tense. Verse 9 marks the transition. Likewise. Or, or maybe in similar manner. And then Paul goes on to address the ladies in the congregation. And just as it was with the men, so it is here. We will look at her calling and then what is commended to her and what is condemned for her. So according to our passage, what are women called to? Particularly at church when the congregation gathers together for worship. The answer, women should, verse 9, adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So so the man's calling is to, to pray, and the woman's calling is to adorn. We've already hit on this, but I want to be super clear. This does not mean that when the church gathers, women are like forbidden from prayer or something like that. We, we know that's not the point. But it does mean, and this is all contrary to our bat guano crazy culture that we are living in, it does mean that Scripture has the audacity to recognize that there are men and women, and brace yourselves, but men and women are different. And because they are different, men and women tend to have particular temptations, unique besetting sins, to use the language of Hebrews 12. And that's what Paul is focusing on here. He's speaking generally about men and generally about women. And so let's be honest. For women, the temptation isn't usually to neglect prayer. Women shame us men when it comes to prayer. But according to Scripture, not me, it seems to be that the unique temptation for women is not to neglect prayer, but to give undue attention to their looks. So speaking of looks, what is commended here? As with the men, let me give you two words. Ladies, here are your two words, decency and deeds. Decency and deeds. 
If humility and holiness is what should mark out the men in worship, then what should mark out the women is decency and deeds. When it comes to decency, that's no doubt the best way to describe uh, what Scripture says, the appearance or the clothing or the dress or the attire. I'm using all that interchangeably, okay? This is what should mark out the woman of God. And decency is really the best way to describe those three phrases that are found in verse 9. You see them there. One of them is respectable apparel, and then modesty, and then self-control. And so God's word is saying, ladies, when you gather to worship and when you gather to pray with the church, you should do so in a manner where you are striving for decency. Let's look at these three phrases a little bit more closely. Notice that the apparel of the Christian woman is to be respectable, verse 9. That is to say, she refuses to wear that which would disgrace her Lord or her husband or her children or her children's children. She has no desire in how she presents herself to bring shame to those in her life. She also strives for, verse 9, modesty. And make no mistake about it, that word has strong sexual overtones. The godly woman, she does not want to present in public what is meant for her husband in private. That means that she will go out of her way to make sure that curves and lines and shapes and sizes are not the focal point of how she dresses and how she presents herself. This means that the woman of God, when she prepares to leave the house and head to worship, that she will exercise, verse 9, self-control. John Stott really helpfully summarizes all of this in just a sentence. He says, women are to be discreet and modest in their dress and not to wear any garments which, uh, which is deliberately suggestive or seductive. Now, perhaps this all goes without saying, but you do recognize that when a woman wears a dress, and I don't mean a dress like technically, I mean her attire, her clothing, what a woman wears, it reveals something. And and I don't mean that what a woman wears reveals her body. That's obvious. That's what she's trying to do if she's doing it in a sinful way. She's trying to reveal her body. But, but my point is, it also reveals something else. And what it reveals is her allegiances. So whenever Wendy and I see a woman, or a girl, God forbid, depending upon the age, and she's running around on one of these tiny little crop tops, or she's wearing, you know, shorts that would barely qualify as underwear like five minutes ago, whenever we see that, I say almost the exact same thing to Wendy Every single time. In fact, she's got to the point now where she's beating me to it. We'll say something like this. This poor girl obviously doesn't have a father, a husband, or a pastor who loves her. Because if she did, those men she is called to submit to, they would rebuke her for her sinful dress. But let's be honest. No father who truly loves his daughter wants her showing off that kind of skin. 
No husband who cherishes his wife wants her to advertise to the world what is meant only for him. And no pastor who truly loves his sheep would condone that sort of immorality. So the point that I'm, that I'm trying to get us to see is that our attire, the things that we wear, and particularly with, with women, it reveals something. And again, not just the body. It reveals allegiances. And I would submit to you that those allegiances are obviously not to God, or to his word, or to the authority structures he has set up. So again, decency is what should characterize the Christian woman. But that's not all. She should also be known for her deeds. Her deeds. If you look at verse 10, you find that. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So, so what should characterize the godly woman? Not so much the brand of clothes that she wears or her figure or her nails or any of that stuff. But she should be known for her good works, her deeds. That is where the accent is to be placed, not on her measurements. To which you ask, well, what are these good works? And 1 Timothy 5 clarifies, I think. So you might just turn over a page or two, depending upon the Bible that you have. Look at 1 Timothy 5. Because in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is instructing Timothy about the widows the church ought to support, to, to, to financially take care of. And he says this in 1 Timothy 5.10. He says, 1 Timothy 5.10, having a reputation for good works, okay? And then he goes on to list a couple of them. It's not exhaustive, but it gives us an idea of what these good works consist of. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. You see, church, this is what makes a Christian woman truly beautiful. Does she adorn herself with decency and deeds? Or has she bitten hook, line, and sinker on the world and how the world defines beauty? What matters most to her? What God says in his word about beauty or what Cosmopolitan says about beauty? Now, in all of this, I think if we were to start step back and, and, and try to understand sort of what's going on, I, I think we might recognize that there's also another underlying issue. And, and I really do think that, that it can, in some cases, become a gospel issue. So I want to camp here for just a little moment. Let me try and explain. Christian woman, when you spend all of your time and your energy trying to, quote-unquote, keep up with the Kardashians, you are forgetting the single most important news in all of the universe. And that is this. You cannot improve upon the garments that have been gifted to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say that because in the gospel, and this is true not just of the Christian woman, but of all Christians, 
what God does is he actually robes us again in the righteousness of Christ. So you think for a moment of all of Christ's righteousness and his beauty and his glory and his perfections and his law keeping and the smile that he brings to his heavenly father. You think of all that Christ is. And what God tells us is that Christ and all his benefits are bestowed upon us by grace alone through faith alone. And and what I think we need to lean into and remember and preach to ourselves is that that is what we are clothed in. When God the Father speaks from heaven and says of His Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, the Father makes that same declaration about you. Not tomorrow, not in a week, not in a month, not on judgment day, not if you get it all figured out, not if you get your life put together. God says that about you right now if you are trusting in Christ. And that's because, we, as we have already heard from Scripture, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So think about this. Again, you have already been declared right in God's sight. It's already happened. It's a past tense thing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, justification, the declaration of righteous, the gavel being dropped, it's already happened, Christian. It's already happened. More than that, you have already been brought into God's family. You realize that this is what Christ purchased for you? He purchased for you a seat at the table. This is why when you are baptized, while you are baptized by the church, you are baptized into the name of God. This is why you are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christian, in that moment, you are given God's name. You are adopted into his family. God is saying as you go into the waters, this one is mine. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my child. You've already, as a Christian, been set apart. The the Holy Spirit is, is holy, and he makes you holy. We tend to think that we make ourselves holy. We tend to think that we get to work, and we do all the right things, and we check all the right boxes, and we cross all the T's, and we dot all the right I's, that then we'll be holy. We are already holy in Christ. We are already holy because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us. You realize that the Son of God literally shed His blood to purchase you. Think about that. To make you His. God died to bring you into His family. And your inheritance is already secured. Again, we we sort of buy into some of this stuff about crowns and rewards and fire and burning and we're... You realize that you have an inheritance, Christian, and it is kept for you in heaven by the power of God? Do you know what your inheritance is? All of creation. A new heaven and a new earth. This is what Christ wins for you in the gospel. 
Now, I labor here and we camp here because I want to specifically, again, address you sisters. Do you believe this? Do you believe what God has said in his word? Do you believe the promises of the gospel? Then rest in Christ. And here's the point. Here's where it connects. Be content, sister, to be adorned in his righteousness. And give up chasing uh, the carrot of, of worldliness that is dangled out in front of you. And instead, sink your teeth into Christ and actually rest in Him. This brings us then to what is condemned. We've been dancing around it for a couple of moments, but let's make it explicit. Just like with the women, or just like with the men, rather, with the women, I offer you one word, flaunting. Flaunting. That's the, that's the main idea there towards the end of verse 9. We're told women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Here he goes, not with what? Braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, ladies, let's be very clear. Uh, what is being forbidden here is not having a hairstyle or owning jewelry or wearing nice clothes. That's not it. The rub is... That when you have those things or you use those things or you flaunt those things in such a way where it promotes immodesty or indecency. Now, as we wrestle together with these things and how to apply verse 9 and the braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, know this, there were two basic issues in Ephesus at this time when it came to women, which means that we know what Paul was seeking to correct here. We know the sin that he was trying to curb when he forbade verse 9's, again, braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, okay? On the one hand, it's vanity. In ancient Ephesus, the braided hair and the gold and the pearls and the costly attire, it all screamed, look at me. It screamed, I'm the center of the world. It screamed like these young girls on TikTok that just promote their lives and want likes. That's what it's all about. This is like lifestyles of the rich and famous church edition. One scholar notes, the sculpture and literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and or gold and or pearls. The courtesans, that is the high-end prostitutes, they wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. So, what Scripture is not forbidding women is you showering in the morning, putting on clean clothes, having a hairstyle, and putting on a necklace. That's not what, it's not what Paul is coming against here. What he is coming against is when people treat the gathering of God's church like a model's runway. This is not the place for ladies to show off, for women to flaunt their figure or their wealth or any of that other stuff that you women have. And that is because chiefly this gathering isn't about you. 
It's not about women, and it's not even about men. It's about a man. It's about Christ. And I'm sorry, but I have to be honest. Women, your vanity, it runs the risk of not just taking your eyes off of Christ, but it runs the risk of taking other people's eyes off of Christ and putting them on you. Now, the other issue that the church in Ephesus faced that gives rise to these words is vulgarity. And and I've already alluded to this when I read you that quote about courtesans. Remember, Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis. And because of the temple and what went on there, and that's all I'm going to say considering the young children, it was more than common to find all manner of prostitutes in Ephesus. And you know what? Prostitutes were easy to spot. They didn't have Tinder back then, so they had to dress in a certain way to let people know the market they were in, if I can put it like that. So they would dress in such a way that would let everyone know who was in that market that they were, if we might say, open for business. So what Paul is saying is this, and this is as PG-13 as I'm going to get. Women, don't go to church looking like a prostitute right? Don't dress in such a way so that the people around you will think, that girl's easy. That's what Paul is saying. And what I'm saying to contemporize this is Christian women, don't allow yourself to imitate scantily clad pop stars or promiscuous Hollywood actresses. They have nothing on earth to teach you especially when it comes to decency and deeds. So as your pastor, I would say, why, why would you follow their lead when it comes to what is quote-unquote fashionable or trending or beautiful? So to return to that one word that describes what Scripture forbids, women don't flaunt. Don't flaunt your vanity and don't flaunt your vulgarity, your money, your figure. To do so is not pleasing in the sight of Christ, who is, remember, your bridegroom. In conclusion, then, as a church, we face two great temptations when we gather together for worship. For men, it is fighting. For women, it is flaunting. Men, hear me well. Your misplaced zeal can easily endanger your integrity. So men, and I always say this, particularly younger men. I'm 40 now, so that's all of you younger than me. Be on guard. And women, your focus on your external appearance rather than your internal character can quickly blind you. So women, be on guard. And be on guard, church, by resting in Christ. This is the antidote, isn't it? To know that Christ is enough. To know that he died for angry men and for flaunting women. And so men and women, young and old, lean into the promise that Christ is enough. And that when you lean into Christ, you lay hold of Christ. You lay hold of all you need in this life and in the life to come. So rest in him. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, you know the 
temptations of our heart. You know what we are prone to. You know that we are needy people and that we need your grace. And so we pray that in your grace, you would direct our eyes, even in these moments, and particularly as we prepare to come to the table of Christ, that you would direct our eyes to him, that we would see that Christ is sufficient to save wretches, even wretches like us. And then by the indwelling power of your spirit, strengthen us to walk in ways that are altogether pleasing in the sight of our Savior. We ask these things in his name. Amen.